Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. Today, I was thrilled to be joined by Chamath Palihapitiya, founder and CEO of Social Capital. Chamath is best known as an early member of Facebook's senior executive team, where he played an instrumental role in the company's exponential growth. Over the last decade, he's been investing actively in the private and public markets. And some of Chamath's most notable investments include Slack, Tesla, Amazon, Bitcoin, Virgin Galactic, and Opendoor. We covered a variety of topics in this wide-ranging discussion, our impending shift to decentralization, the role of risk capital in society, the myths about the private and public markets, and how governments and corporations can work together to fix capitalism. We rounded out the discussion on a more personal note and talked about what motivates Chamath and how he defines his North Star. This was one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had on the pod. Welcome, Chamath. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for including me. It's great to be here with me. Yeah. You know, Chamath, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. You know, there's so many ways we can begin this dialogue, but I want to start at the most macro level and work our way down. We used to live in a world where the toolkit of society was primarily driven by laws. And you've aptly pointed out that in real time now, we're moving to a world in which this toolkit is driven by technology, code, science, and math. Maybe we can start the discussion with some context on that shift and help us unpack the implications. Well, look, I, I've used this analogy before, so I'll start with this, which is that I think that a lot of what happens in the world can be understood if you view it as um, a pendulum. And, you know, a pendulum swings between two poles. So, you know, that framework, when I have applied it over the last 20 years to technology investing, as an example, um, is one where on one end of the pole was high centralization and on the other end was um, high fragmentation. And as these and as the sort of pendulum swung back and forth, you saw these iterations of the Internet. Right. Um, and Web 3.0 is a is a meaningful swing into this decentralization. But as it turns out, I think that the world works in the same way, um, except it just uh, swings much slower. So, you know, when you look back to kind of like the turn of, you know, Christianity and sort of like Judeo-Christian values and um, Judeo-Christian values, what you had was a highly centralized organization. And the reason was technology was largely non-existent. And so you had to have people that were organized because the only asset they had was labor, right? And that labor had to get allocated for survival. But then slowly what you had was the rise of private enterprise. And what really what that was was the rise of individual entrepreneurs, right? As the, the body of knowledge that humans had grew, folks all around the world could come to their own conclusions. They would invariably invent things based on top of all of that body of knowledge. They would extend the body of knowledge. They would create things, and then businesses would come out of it. And so where government started as a highly centralized organizing principle, they've moved increasingly to a place where they are really largely there you know, to do two things. One is to get out of the way by creating laws and guardrails. And the second is to create incentives for new on-ramps to be created that otherwise wouldn't exist. And in technology, that just accelerates it. So a perfect example of this, you know, the government in the United States has been trying for years to raise the minimum wage, right? And they come into this philosophical argument around the minimum wage. This is just a simple example. But you know, minimum wage at the federal level is $7.25 an hour. Um, 
just in the last few weeks, so we're talking at the end of October of 2021, you know, you had folks like McDonald's, Starbucks, their average salaries are now 17 bucks an hour, right? There's a government sponsored proposal that was in a three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure bill just as of a couple of days ago to provide free college, uh, community college education to any American, which just got booted out of the bill. Amazon a month and a half ago said, if you're an employee, we'll just pay for your college. And Amazon is now the largest employer in the United States. So what does all of this show you? Well, why does McDonald's and Starbucks have to pay $17 an hour? It's an indirect implication of technology and the efficiency that they're seeing, either as competition from folks like DoorDash or Ghost Kitchens or Uber Eats, or because they can actually have fewer people or they build their end-to-end -end product in a different way so that they have more profitability that they can reallocate to benefits. In the same case, it's true with Amazon. So technology, what it does is it just massively accelerates this push to decentralization, which then pushes governments more and more to respond with good policy and guardrails. Or for example, in the case of things like crypto or climate change, to figure out how to create new policy frameworks and guardrails to create incentives to move there. Um, and I think that's only going to get exacerbated. So at the crux of basically human evolution now, whether we like it or not, is what can and is possible with tech will become manifest destiny. I really like that phrase you just used. What can and is possible with tech will become manifest destiny. You know, Chamath, one of the ways I think about things is as tech becomes less of a cottage industry and more of a mainstay in the global economy, I'm curious how you think about speed. Meaning, what do you think slows down and what do you think moves faster? Well, I, I, I think that not a lot actually slows down. I think um, everything actually goes faster, but that in lies the problem because it's not just progress that goes faster. So, for example, you know, we wanted to launch, you know, um, rockets, right? So, you know, Elon comes out and builds, you know, SpaceX 20 years ago. And now with all the fast followers, we now not only have reusable rockets, but completely 3D printed rockets. And, you know, we have the ability now to actually see us as a multi-planetary species. Um, so technology moves faster, right? We started out with uh, a Bitcoin project, um, you know, less than more, just a little bit more than a decade ago. And fast forward now, we have a multi-trillion dollar movement to decentralize the entire financial infrastructure of the world with Web 3.0 and all of that stuff. So all of that, I would say, is the good part of acceleration. What also goes faster, though, is people's observation of haves and have-nots and the distribution of outcomes. And I think that historically, people have been more accepting of a distribution of outcomes because those that have the tail, whether it's the left or the right, really, really seemed far away to us, right? So if we were sitting here 30 or 40 years ago, before social media, you know, you wouldn't have never thought about the extreme poverty in Africa, right? The, the left tail consequence outcomes didn't really bother you. Nor would you have ever thought of, you know, some Japanese magnet who is the richest person in the world because his outcome also was not really that germane to you. Now, if you think of what's happened, tail outcomes just become highly magnified. And so that acceleration of awareness also accelerates insecurity and also accelerates this feeling of have and have not. And that's probably the biggest negative artifact of all this technological progress because we confuse 
people's desire to do things and then the wealth that comes as a result with then a propensity for consumption and then it becomes this entire you know fight between and and I I wouldn't even call it rich versus poor it's just a it's it's actually very structural classism right and we are actually bringing back um fights that have happened for centuries and centuries and so that's you know that's the negative consequence i think of all this acceleration which is the the insecurity and the emotional reaction to long tail outcomes and so how do we build a system that takes advantage of the positive propensity and minimizes the negative you know is it an attempt at fixing the existing system as is uh is it having a new system emerge that disrupts it you have this quote i love which in kind speaks to this point crypto destroys capitalism and that's better for the world. So right now what we're living in is a period I think that I can best describe as um confused. And the reason is that we have a completely new toolkit with which to view value in the world, but we are still using an old framework. So let me just unpack that for a second. You know, anybody today has the ability to acquire the skills they need to be economically self-sufficient in a way that was never possible before. You know, there's much more internet accessibility than there was, you know, 20 years ago. Um a lot of content that would otherwise have been paid or gated is now free. Um there's all kinds of jobs where you can on-ramp yourself from all over the world. And so if you have the human potential to go and seek um economic emancipation, you can find it. The problem is that we don't value that as a society. Right? We're still stuck in this antiquated, very hierarchical way of viewing outcomes which is tied in many ways to the amount of money that you have, the zip code in which you live, the schools that you went to, the clubs that you belong to. So there's an entire societal infrastructure that values a certain way of living life. And that juxtaposed with how you can live your life is what is in conflict today. And I think that's what causes so much of this tension. You know, when I talked about crypto destroying capitalism, you know, if you look at capitalism, we need to move to a different version of it, right? We don't need to destroy it. Because the the thing about capitalism that is structurally the purest feature of any system that you could design is that you have a very elegant voting mechanism where you vote with dollars, right? And because there are negative consequences to spending one's dollars you have typically generally very rational behavior and that and that's emo- that's that's really important because we humans are emotional irrational beings by design as well right that's also part of the feature that allowed us to survive so you know we need a version of capitalism where you can vote with money and you can affect change you want to go after you know cancer you want to go after climate change you want to fix you know education you should be able to do those things and you know for for most um of these opportunities everybody should get out of the way so that you can achieve your potential um but the thing that we need to fix is that there is you know some bugs some historical artifacts of capitalism that just don't work so you know uh minorities will talk to you about how capitalism has a lens that limits the progression of their ability to succeed right their ability to get capital um folks of lower or middle class view capitalism as having this bug where through the lens of classism they don't necessarily get access to the capital that they need 
Um, you know, so there's all of these different cohorts of people that have certain issues with it. And I think that the next iteration of where we're going actually has this beautiful feature, which is that it is gender blind, color blind, sexual orientation blind, religion blind, class blind. Um, and that's very empowering. There was a there was an article, again, I tweeted it today about how there's a disproportionate number of blacks that have adopted crypto relative to whites and Hispanics. And that's an incredible thing, you know, because blacks have been systematically, and this is really not a debatable fact, systematically shut out of many of the traditional capital on-ramps that the United States has. And so they haven't been able to, you know, secure their own economic freedom the way that other folks may have. But now crypto is an asset class and a behavior that's so decentralized that they've been able to adopt it. And when you look at you know certain applications, whether it's Robinhood or um, Coinbase or Square Cash App, PayPal, it's accelerating the ability for these individuals to really um, level themselves on the playing field. So you know I'm 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 pretty excited about where the world is going, uh, and I think what we're fixing. Um, are these structural bugs that frankly are inefficient for what we, where we need to go? What do you think happens when we actually fix these structural bugs? And maybe a different way to frame the question is, how much of the world doesn't reach its potential today because of artificial constraints or system level design flaws? And then what should the role of the private sector and public sector be to close that gap? I think 95% of people don't achieve their potential. Maybe 98%. Who achieves their potential? It is the cream skimming of the Western world. So what are we really talking about? 50 million people out of 8 billion that have some form of, you know, true structural um, happiness. Again, I'll, I'll be very careful. As measured in a traditional way. I, I suspect there are many, many more people in a very non-traditional way that are quite happy. But, you know, the American, you know, framework of value doesn't necessarily appreciate that, right? I mean, like, you know, I'm sure you've seen these surveys where, you know, uh, Bhutan is the happiest country in the world. And I'm sure most people think, where the fuck is Bhutan? So, you know, Americans don't care about that. They they refuse to uh, assign any value to that idea because Bhutan seems like some third world, you know, country. And so, you know, how could they be happier? We're America. Um, I get that. So let's just put that bias to the side, but just just acknowledge that it exists. Um, but in, in the traditional framework, there's probably 50 million people um, that, that have a chance to really be happy in that traditional you know, checklist of how value is, is, is measured. Um, so there's a lot of uh, opportunity. Um, the question is, how do you get about it? Um, and that's not altogether all that clear to me, except that I think that the way the world is moving um, is a direction that really disrupts that 50 million people. And this is why we get into such a structural argument. So what are we really talking about, Ramin? I'm, and, I, and I'm gonna put a very critical idea on the table here, which I think is true. There will be a tremendous amount of establishment pushback to leveling the playing field. And it really is the establishment that very much cares that this historical artifact of how value is measured stays the same because you're asking people who were otherwise in power to give that power up and redistribute it. 
And I think what's so funny about this is I actually think that a lot of people simplify the issues at hand to ones of wealth, where people really talk about wealth inequality. But I actually really don't think people care as nearly as much about wealth as they care about power. What do I mean by that? When you're living in Des Moines, Iowa, I don't think you're really jealous of Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. I think you're really considering about your quality of life relative to the people in your neighborhood and you're wondering, do I have a good life and is my life tracking upwards and to the right? And can I provide more? And, and when you feel out of kilter is probably when your neighbor buys a new car and you can't, not when Elon Musk buys a new car and you can't, just to, right, to frame that idea properly. So we have an establishment that I think has tremendous vested interests in things staying the way that they are. And so within that 50 million, there are some hundreds of thousands of people who are in positions of power who will dig in their heels. From a game theory perspective, it's obvious that they would. But from a game theory perspective, it's now even more obvious why this push to decentralization makes sense. And we're, we're going to see this tension build up in the system. Um, and... You know, eventually, um, I mean, I suspect, I think we know where this is going, which is it's very hard for a few hundred thousand people to stem the tide of seven or eight billion people. And so we're going into that place. The question is how quickly and what are the real demarcations of progress that say that, you know, that new world order is at hand? And that's what we get to be a witness to. And I think that that's super exciting. It's interesting because I think a lot of the eroding trust in government is because of two things. So one is the function, you know, poor capital allocation. But the second thing is back to your point on power. So there's a fleeting grasp of control of the establishment. And when you translate that grasp of control into actions, you actually get an extreme left and an extreme right. That's the same. Can't tell the difference. Look, I, I actually think, um, you know, people try to define a political spectrum as a line. Um, and it's really a circle. Um, and, you know, at, at the two furthest points of the circle, right, um, what you're really dealing with in, in the diameter, what you're really dealing with is, is sort of like, you know, left versus right. Um, and the problem is when you move to these different poles, this is when you get these sort of extreme effects. And at the end of the day, if you come all the way around, most people find that, the extreme, extreme right and the extreme, extreme left very much intersect because they're characteristically the same. You know, they, they both um, are, you know, what we call moral absolutists. They both have a very rigid worldview where they are right. And as a result, everybody else is wrong. And they have different ways in which they build up that absolute worldview of themselves but in all cases, you end up where they are willing to be authoritarian to impose their will because they're so convinced about how right they are. And I think that that's quite dangerous. And if you look back in history, you can see that a lot of very dangerous authoritarian movements have just as much started on the left. You know, Hitler was a leftist socialist. Think about that. That is insane that somebody that evil and that despotic started out, you know, um, basically espousing extremely socialist um, views. Uh, Mussolini, 
you know, Pol Pot, all these people. That, so th that to me is really quite scary. What it really says is that the extreme left and the extreme right are actually hard to distinguish. And so we should be very careful of um, uh, making sure that we reject both of them soundly and equally because one could easily become the other. You know, there's a, there's a great philosopher that I really uh, believe in. His name is Rene Girard. He was a professor at Stanford. He passed away a little while ago. And he has this theory called mimetic theory, which is this idea that when humans are born, you're born with no preference or desire. And what really happens is over time, you adopt the preferences and desires of the people around you. And that's actually what causes conflict. And a, a brilliant and very elegant example of this is if you take you know, a five-year-old and you stick her into a room full of toys, she'll pick up a toy. If you stick two five-year-olds in a room, they try to pick up the same toy. Now, if you think about yourself as an adult, you know, you, you know, will be in a corporate hierarchy and want a job. And you could have your best friend, but the minute that that best friend also wants that same job, now all of a sudden you're in deep conflict, right? And that's where politics and all these other crazy things can come up, where in any other situation, you would actually just be very good, loving, trusting friends. So th think about what that shows. And his, his ability to distill that was this idea that we copy the people around us. And, that's, and, and ultimately, that's actually what creates conflict. Back to what I said earlier, if you look at the extreme left and the extreme right, like, for example, you see all this fighting between the Proud Boys and Antifa. I view that as mimetic theory playing out. They're both so extreme. They're both on, you know, what we think are such polar opposites, but they're actually the same. And that's why they end up in conflict because they're sort of, they're very similar, you know, and they're fighting over the same, their version of the truth with just different words and phrases and labels that they use. So we take a slightly different view on this, Chamath. What's the role of risk capital in more broadly furnishing solutions to these challenges? And there's a particularly interesting quote you have that's in line with the subtext of decentralization that we're talking about. The quote is, venture capital properly deployed can solve the biggest problems filling the void left by the shrinking scientific ambitions of government, foundations, and international organizations. I'd love for you to unpack that a bit more. Look, I made a decision in 2017 that in order to achieve my goals, um, I could no longer do the business the way that I used to do it. Um, I still invest in private markets. Um, I deploy a lot of risk capital, as we call it, as you call it, um, in very early stage um, technology companies. Um, it's just that my ambition um, is different and is mismatched to the mechanical day-to-day -day job of running uh, a fund and being a quote-unquote venture capitalist. Because in those jobs, you know, you have these very rigid ways in which the job has to be done. You have to be in these specific sectors, you can only invest certain quantums of money. You have to make sure you recycle the capital quickly to the extent that you are successful. And you're now seeing firms push back on that. So Sequoia just recently announced a complete reorganization of their risk capital business to acknowledge something that I think is very smart, which is the right way to do it. So the way that they're doing it is actually very similar to the way I'm doing at Social Capital. The difference is that they still use other people's money and I only use my own, but it's the exact same setup. You know, we each have tens of billions of dollars. We each focus on doing what we think is right. 
We can be in businesses for decades and decades. Um, and I think that the reason why that's the right way to think about it is that there is not enough work being done in the institutions that historically created, going back to how I started, this body of knowledge that humans have been able to extend and embrace and, and you know build themselves on top of. If you look at core scientific research, it's abysmal. If you look at what's happened in you know um, scientific papers and scientific literature, it's become just this random political exercise around citations. So we've lost the ability to empower young, brilliant people to go off and you know uh, swing for the fences. Now, why do I say that? Um, why do I say young? I'm not trying to be ageist, but when you look back at the body of work um, that Nobel Prizes are typically awarded to, they're awarded to people in their 60s and 70s for work that they did in their 20s and 30s. So there just tends to be this boundary condition where brilliant people in their 20s and 30s are, I don't know, let's just be a little pejorative to make the case naive. I would say just open-minded and free, right? They're not, you know, with two and a half kids and, you know, dealing with all kinds of stuff. Uh, they're free to think openly. And they're able to really do these crazy things. We've lost that. Um, and so that should be the job of risk capital. And so, you know, I wanted to put myself in a position to fund more of that. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, one of the most important bodies of work that has been massively underinvested in the in the world is around superconductors, right? So what is this idea? So you've heard the term semiconductor and you've probably never unpacked the word. Well, semiconductor means a kind of conductor, okay? And it's a generic catch-all term that essentially says, you know, you can run, you know, uh, electricity or current power, however you want to think about it, and you can do things inside of this little piece of silicon. Well, what if you had a superconductor, something that just, you know, without zero resistance could just shunt electricity, you know, from point A to point B um, with no loss? Well, you can really reimagine, frankly, everything, how computing works, how energy transmission works, and everything in between. We have nary, you know, an amount of progress that we should be proud of in that area. It's the next massive leap forward for uh, electronics. Um, and there are three labs in the United States that are really doing anything about it. Three. That's a joke. And if you add up the total budgets of those labs, it's under 30 million bucks a year. How is it that you can take the smartest people in the world, put them on these kinds of tasks, and then tie both their hands behind their backs? And meanwhile, you know, if you go back to the federal budget, one trillion here, two trilli trillion, and, I'm, and these guys are fighting for millions. So, um, you know, I think it's important for guys like us to go and do that work without the constraints of time. And, you know, I use the capital markets, to be very honest, as a way to fund those activities. You know, and I think a lot of the time people don't understand, like, you know, why do I do these SPACs or why do I make these public market investments or whatever? I see an opportunity to get behind a great business, number one. But... I also see the opportunity to compound my capital so that I can then harvest and put it into these other things, yeah. right? And, you know, people want me to be absolute about my positions. I can never, because, you know, this superconductor thing that I'm doing or this climate change thing that I'm doing absorbs hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, I'm just a one person. Yeah. 
And so the money has to come somewhere. But so that cycle of risk capital, I think, is um, is the future of how progress will really happen. Um, in, in, in some ways, and this may be a, a, a bad term, I guess, for some, but, you know, if, if you look at like the de' Medici family in Venice, right? This was like, you know, ma it was a historic form of patronage, right? And, you know, but they were able to engender a renaissance. Now, think of a scaled version of that where capitalists all around the world can use money to push good work into society. And I think that's what Sequoia is doing, which I think is beautiful. You know, it's what I'm trying to do. A lot of other people, Jim Simons, you know, there's a lot of us who've been very fortunate, who've made a real commitment to use our capital to, to put back into society. This is, again, why please be very careful to not judge capital allocation and consumption because there's a lot of people who are great capital allocators who aren't consuming. And I think, you know, when push comes to shove, it's very hard to say that you wouldn't want folks like us allocating capital because I think we're very good at it. Say more about that dynamic of capital allocation versus consumption uh, before you continue with what you were saying. So what what is being a CEO I think it's about allocating capital, meaning making decisions about the resources that you have. So now, as a CEO of a corporation, what resources do you have? You have the resources of the people inside your company, so that's human capital. You have the resources of the things that you build, so product capital. And you have resources of money, right? Monetary capital. Those three things can create incredible outcomes. Take Steve Jobs. He takes a great team, a great product vision, and money, and out comes the mobile phone revolution. How transformative has that been for society? It's been incredible. Take Zuck. Takes people, takes money, takes product. He connected the world. You know, three odd billion people. That's, it, it's an insane idea um, that these people were able to execute on. Take Elon, you know, not just once, not just twice. He's done it three times, right? Revolution in payments, a revolution in rocketry, and a revolution in electric vehicles. It's incredible. So master capital allocators have the ability to basically play a highly strategic game of putting these resources together in these unique combinations that create these massive outcomes. If you take that job, however, and give it to anybody else, they're not going to do as good of a job, just like they would do a horrible job doing something else. So if you ask these great entrepreneurs to be a great 12 history teacher, they'll probably screw it up. If you ask them to be a brain surgeon, they would screw that up. And if you ask them to be a politician, they would screw that up as well. It, the opposite is also true. Right? To be a grade 12 history teacher is a very specific set of skills. We should value those skills. That person is you know, no worse than an entrepreneur, nor no better. Right, Equal. Everybody's equal. The brain surgeon is the same, and the politician is the same. But right now, what happens is we can conflate a lot of things. And particularly these two poles between politicians and entrepreneurs, we conflate. And we think each can do the job of the other. And this is where capital misallocation happens. Companies become too focused on policy. Corporations or governments become too focused on capital allocation and uh, instead of just writing the laws and the incentives. So, for example, we are better off if you believe in climate change and you want something fixed, 
There are two paths. Path number one would be the government to actually try to solve the problem itself. We're going to build batteries. We're going to build, um, you know, uh, different forms of nuclear energy. We're going to uh, build, you know, uh, massive research labs around superconducting. Or we're going to create incentives. We're going to give credits for people to deploy residential solar. We're going to give credits to anybody who sells an electric vehicle car. We're going to backstop and subsidize our own domestic supply chain for national security interests so that we can secure an entire end-to-end -end supply of the critical metals we will need for an energy transition. The former is trying to be an entrepreneur. The latter is being a good politician. If the government can just stick to that, entrepreneurs will see those rules. They will run there with money, people, and product and solve it. And that's the public-private partnership that really scales. And that's where, you know, America, frankly, has done their best. The perfect example of this is the Apollo Project. You know, at the end of 1969, that was an incredible thing where what the government really did was create incredible incentives for private industry to build all of the building blocks. And the government acted as a massive system integrator to pull all of these pieces together. You know, we were able to send somebody to the moon. But then all of that private enterprise flourished into all these other industries after the fact because the government acted as an incentive and a catalyst. That's a very powerful model that I think if we can recapture, our best days are ahead of us. For you specifically, why have you decided to focus on public markets and as a choice of you know, armory, I guess, why SPACs versus anything else in the toolkit? Well, it's not, it's not just SPACs. So you know, I, I have large public stock positions um, I anchor IPOs. Um, I do SPACs as well. Um, I've looked at, you know, doing some activist investing and taking stakes and, you know, a rallying cry for change in certain companies. Um, I've thought about outright M&A. Um, the way to think about it is that when your capital base grows beyond a certain point, the private risk markets cannot really absorb the capital in a thoughtful way. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can take 10, 20 billion and pump it into the private markets and close your eyes, but you're, you know, you're trading enormous illiquidity and volatility. And now I'm in the business, frankly, of never going out of business, <laughs> right? So that's, the, that's job number one. And so if job number one is to never go out of business, I need to build an economic engine that's spitting out capital that I can harvest and put into things. And that's where the, cap that's where the public capital markets are extremely powerful because they're massive in scale and they're hugely liquid and they're, uh, they have very beautiful guardrails, great laws. You know, there's ways where you can interact with folks which are very um, set in stone. And I think that that, predictability um, and consistency, um, you know, doesn't allow me to generate, you know, 300% or whatever, but I can, you know, put 20 to 25% on the board on a big number and take all that money and kind of just, you know, do what I need to do every day. So that's, that's how I view our job in the capital markets. I think one of the misnomers in capital markets is where do short-term thinkers play and where do long-term thinkers play? You know, we think about private markets as where capital goes for long-term thinking. And we think of public markets where it's quarter to quarter or more short-term thinking. But you're clearly a long-term thinker and you're playing in the public markets. 
right? Flipping that model on its head in many senses. Well, that's the arbitrage. Everybody says that the private markets are for long-term thinking. Um, they're not. They're the most short-term you can imagine, and I'll explain in a second. And the private markets, everybody says, is, is, is too many short-termers. And that is true, which is why the ARB is to think long-term. Like, this goes back to, um, I, I, I have this idea, which is that you have to play your own game if you're going to win, right? Like, imagine you're playing chess against your arch nemesis, except the only thing is that you can change the rules whenever you want. Oh, you know, the rook can go any which way they want. Oh, you know, it doesn't matter. I, I just need to move my pawn one place and I get back my knight. You know, whatever. You can make up any rule. The point is, you would be guaranteed to win, right? If you could just change the rules. The only game that is like that is actually the most important game, which is your life. Every time you want to win, you can just change the rules. So for me, I am playing a life game, an infinite game, so it never ends. And I'm playing against myself. And so I am constantly making up my own rules that allow me to win. Okay? And so in that context, there's this incredible arbitrage, which is that people in the private markets and the public markets have a job to be done. And if you understand their job, the arbitrage is to be the opposite. So in the public markets, what are people's jobs? They run mutual funds, ETFs, or hedge funds. How are those jobs done? They're done by having large pools of money go into an organized vehicle where there's a limited partner and a general partner, plus or minus. But the, the, the feature of that business, which is actually a massive bug, is that you can pull the money whenever you want. You don't like that person's performance? Give me my money back. That one single thing changes the job to be done. And so the entire industry in the public markets has morphed. Their job to be done is to not find long-term growth. It's to keep their job, which happens by not having short-term money get pulled. That's what causes the short-termism in the market. Now, you can still be very masterful at that job and do well, but I'm not one of those people. So in that market, again, my life, my rules, my rule is I'm going to do the exact opposite of them because now it puts me in a position to win. When they're thinking short-term and I think long-term, the market arbitrages will become very obvious. And in fact, they are really quite obvious. Hedge fund folks are super smart, but they're constrained by the job to be done. If you could take the shackles off, meaning change the business model, they'd ton it and they'd be able to own Amazon for 30 or 40 years. But they're not able to do that. In fact, I remember when I was really the first person of, you know, kind of like notoriety that really got behind Amazon 2014 or 15, at this very public and very famous thing called the Iris Own Conference, which is the top hedge fund folks, I was laughed off stage when I told people that this would be a $3 trillion company. Seven years ago, when the stock was at like, you know, 100 bucks, it's now a $3,000 stock. 
I did the, I did the same thing with Tesla. I was laughed off stage the next year. And so it's not that they thought I was really wrong. It's that in the framework of their job to be done, I was speaking so heretically, it made no sense to them. But my arbitrage paid off. Similarly, in the private market, so again, now you have to go, what's the job to be done? Well, the job to be done is to raise another fund. Now, their constraint is something very different, which is they have long-term capital, but they have very little liquidity. It happens in bursts. And so what do they need to do? They need to show paper markups. They can't show real profits, but they can show the projection that future profits will appear. So how do they behave? They tell these people, focus on short-term growth. Because I need to show a paper markup so that other people will give me money for my new fund. That's their job to be done. And so what is the opposite? The opposite behavior is to not have to do that and to basically, again, think long-term and be able to take much longer bets. Um, so it's actually like not that hard. Again, I think these folks are very smart as well and could do that job, uh, but their constraint isn't set up for that. So what happens is private companies grow super fast because the cycle of money, 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 you know, come in, fund more growth, short-term growth, no matter how unprofitable. And then there typically tends to be a moment and you see it in all of these tech companies that go public. There's going to be a quarter in the first two years. They're just going to get, you know, decapitated by the public market investor because their growth falls off a cliff. They come out without the ability to forecast, right? That's the, I think, the bug of the IPO process. It's a feature of the SPAC process because you can show the potential for future returns. Now, you have to be accurate. And again, most people aren't very good at that. But if you can be, you can build a real reputation for being very predictable. Um, and these companies just get decapitated. And then that's when I step in. And I'm like, okay, well, now they have the reset. Now this thing is 30% cheaper. Can this thing grow for 30% a year for, you know, 10 years? I'll buy it. I put it away. You know, just to give you an example, Ramin, and I'll put you on the spot. If you open up your phone and you open up your stock app, how many stocks do you look at? Oh, I know exactly where you're going with this. So, Chamath, I deleted all my stock apps, you know, Coinbase, et cetera, included, because I think my mind was getting rewired to short-term thinking because of how frequently I was checking them. Good for you. So if I opened my phone and the market was up, you know, or the market was down, it would actually affect my mood for the day. And, and I think the more dangerous thing was I started to look for narratives to justify those moves. There you go. And I lost a total sense of, you know, if you compound your money for 15% a year, let's say for 30 years, you know, you can be me and, and not you, and you can be really, really rich. Really, really rich. Right, but what starts to happen in these apps is you start to get seduced by a new stock every day. You know, something's going up by 50% today, something's by 40% tomorrow. And you start thinking, you know, should I be in this company, that company? And you just become detached from reality. Look at look at all the look at all the noise today, the last couple of days about Shiba Shiba Inu. Shiba Inu. And you know, what did Coinbase do, which was quite genius? Coinbase changed the copy of their app in the app store that says, you know, buy Bitcoin, ETH, and SHIB. 
And and what do people do? It now becomes the number one trending app, more popular than TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, and the thing just goes absolutely bananas. And so to your point, it can work in the short term, but you just have to remember, you are now playing somebody else's game and it will eventually lose because the 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 difference is you're not playing by your own rules. Um, I, I I really applaud you for doing that. I don't have it on my phone. Um, I make it very problematic for me to go and see where these things are trading. I don't care. Um, we try to do this thoughtful work and we try to then you know work backwards from okay, are they achieving what we thought they would achieve and are they on track? That's a it's a much more boring exercise. Like you know. We did a workup, for example, on um, a company that we own, a lot of. And it's like a 60-page thing. and uh, But it's beautiful. I read it. I think about it. I let it marinate for a week. I'm good with where we are. Everybody else will chirp. Ah, it's too concentrated. Ah, we should trim this or that. No, I'm good. Um, I, I have this great team working on behalf of us, and we get to be a part of you know, his journey. Um, it's a blessing. Play your playing your own game is really important. Most people don't uh, don't want to do that. They and then you get the and then you get the you know the the downside of that. You know when when I look on Twitter, I would say that there's you know five percent of people that are there to get content, ten percent of people, but then there's a large number of people that are there to just vent their own dissatisfaction with their own life choices. You know, and that's where you get sort of like all of this vitriolic hate. And, you know, it's also where you get a lot of disinformation and misinformation. It's where you get a lot of bots and all of this activity rolled up together can really be tilting. Um, You have to find a way of sticking to your own game, define it, write it down and then stick to it. So let's say you were designing an education system you know, from first principles, you have four soon to be five kids. I have five. I had a baby two days ago, three days ago. Oh, congrats. Fantastic. So we, we both come from immigrant families. We know that education is a big unlock for social mobility. And in recent years, you know, education and and really higher ed specifically has been a mess. Uh, We talked about this a little bit earlier, um, but we're not really unlocking the potential of so many of our young people. If you wanted to solve for that problem statement, right? Designing an education system to unleash maximum potential. How do you think about it? Let's just say I I had a kid in grade um, six. I don't, but just make it up. Um, I would love grade six religion to be taught by the best religion teacher in the country. And then when they go to science, the best science teacher to be taught, to be teaching them. And then, you know, they go to computer science, the, the best teacher there. I mean, we have these awards, right? We know how to recognize talent in our teaching core. And we should treat these teachers like athletes. I mean, they should be getting LeBron James type salaries, 40 million a year for four years. Really, they should. And now why should they get that? Because the amount of GDP and human potential that they unlock, if they were able to teach um a thousand kids, five thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, it's enormous. Now, what stops us from being able to do that? Well, it's not technology, it's policy and it's governance, right? So it's a combination of teachers' unions and the laws that don't want to see an efficient market. But if you actually asked a parent, 
irrespective of whether you're a Democrat or Republican and irrespective of whether you are pro-union or not, you would want your child to be given the best. You would want the best computer science, math, religion, you know, geography teacher in the world to teach your kid. Um, so if I had to reconstruct the education system, I would orient it around you know, more choice. I think that's probably the simplest approximation that works. I think the only toolbox toolkit that we have in the toolbox, and you know, it's a pretty loaded term, but it's charter schools. You know, <clears throat> I, I think it should happen in a much more structural way, quite honestly, but I don't think it's possible. So, you know, probably more investment in charter schools would, would be one so that, you know, for example, like, you know, um, Elon started a school for his kids um, and then it scaled beyond his kids and now it's its own thing. You know, I'm doing the same thing now here um, in, in Northern California um, and it's going to scale, you know, beyond, you know, just a small cohort of kids to large number of kids. And, you know, I have a very specific curriculum that, you know, uh, Nat and I really feel is important multiple languages and you know the focus on a bunch of disciplines a focus on stem this kind of stuff um it's so unscalable you know i would love that if this worked you know any kid can just hop on a zoom and you know they can go to a classroom in rochester new york and they could be there in the whole day and there would be teachers in the classroom to facilitate what is taught by the LeBron James of geography and math. I mean, that just seems so obvious and so non-controversial, but it is. You know, you have an intellectual consistency to your position, Shamath, which I really appreciate. And I think if you really listen deeply to this conversation, the foundation of that consistency is apparent. You've named this idea previously and called it being an inclusion maximalist. So everything we've talked about thus far, decentralization, fixing higher ed, helping more people reach their potential. It all comes from this idea of inclusion maximalization. And I think you can get a sense of what that means just by hearing the phrase, but maybe you can unpack it a bit more. It's an interesting thread to tie together a lot of the component pieces we've been talking about today. You know, if you, if, if you visualize this idea of your life as a race, and the gun goes off and, you know, you start running on a track and then eventually the track ends and then it's, you know, pavement and then it's mountains. And then, you know, you're running a little cross country. Sometimes you're sprinting, sometimes you're walking, but it's this journey. Um, there are obstacles in your way. Um, everybody has a version of that. And I think that that's reasonable and we shouldn't try and, you know, jump into the middle of your race and all of a sudden smooth over a mountain. You should try to figure out how to climb that mountain because you'll be better off for it. Um, but we should all start from the same place. And, you know, when the gun goes off, we all start in that first 150 meters of flat, pristine track. And then life takes us where life takes us. Um, and that's what I mean by inclusion maximalism. We will be better off. It's just a probabilistic distribution. If you're super dispassionate about it, think about it this way. Right now, of all the people we've discovered, 
in the world who have achieved their potential, if we go back to what we said before, maybe 5% have, right? So what are we talking about? A couple hundred million people, maybe, you know, call, call it 400 million, right? Say there's 8 billion people in the world, 400 million have roughly achieved their potential. We found one Elon, one Bezos, one, uh, you know, Gates, um, okay, one Zuck, one Ellison, you know, one page. You know, we have, we have six people out of 400 million. Well, that means that out of 8 billion, you know, you're going to have, you know, another 40 odd people. Now, that's a ton of progress if you look at what these guys did, you know. And so that's why we should have them. You know, if you look at that four, 400 odd million people, you know, we have one LeBron James, one Steph Curry, you know, one Tom Brady. We should have more of those. We only have one Coldplay, more Coldplays. You know, we only have one Kanye. Maybe only we only still want only one Kanye. But the point is, um, inclusion maximalism basically just says, like, let's just have the starting line be the same and use technology to make that starting line even and see what happens. And I think humanity is better off. Again, it's easy for me to say, although it's also hard for me to say, it's easy for me to say because I came from nothing. But it's, e it's, it, it's hard for me to say because now I have a lot. And, you know, what, what I will say about the establishment is that, you know, what I have found, it's like, you know, people say that, you know, the establishment is racist or, you know, homophobic or they're none of that. You know, those people are supreme classists. They'll accept anybody if they're rich. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and they are very invested in them staying that way. Um, and so fixing that um, is, I think, just a really good place to be. They will still be rich, but many, many others will be as well. And it's that that's the real redistribution you want. You don't want to change the numerator. You want to, sorry, the denominator. You want to change the numerator. You know, you want many, many more people to be in a position to allocate their capital for the change that they want. And that's where a lot of social issues actually get fixed. And instead, I think we get too caught up in talking about these social issues in a language that's too divisive. It doesn't allow people to really empathize properly. <clears throat> and I would just say that humans are very reductionist. When, you know, there's a phrase, it's the economy stupid. It's actually kind of true. You know, if you separate the world into two cohorts, men and women, men can be systematically judged as simpletons who need a job to feel fulfilled I'm sure some large cohort of women do as well. I don't know what that number is, but I can speak for men. So much of men's mental health comes from going to work every day and feeling economically productive. So if you solve that, you'll solve a lot of the tail issues um, because you'll solve the core root cause of all of this systemic unhappiness. And I think people don't understand that. So we got to grow the numerator. Grow the numerator. More people are happy. More people are living their own life, you know, playing their own game. And they become much more accepting of everybody else. Like if I think about how I was when I was poor versus how I was when I am now, 
I'm completely open-minded in a way that I wasn't when I was poor. Because when I was poor, I had a poor mindset. I had a scarcity mindset where anything that I didn't have was because somebody else had it. And now I realize, wow, that's a lie perpetrated on the poor. And I don't have to be that way. And now, you know, I'm much more open and accepting of everything and everybody. And so, you know, there is no social justice law that I probably wouldn't support because I'm like, yeah, that just seems like a... But that's because I come from a place of mental stability and mental health. And that comes from a place because I feel, again, just speaking as a man, it's really important to me that I go to work every day and do something productive in the world. And when I have the opportunity to do that, I'm just happier. And would you say this feeling of inclusion maximization is common of most folks in your economic position? I'll, I'll frame it a different way. I think there can actually be conflict when you're focusing on increasing the numerator. So what does that mean? I went to Harvard for law school. The biggest problem with Harvard's undergrad, and this isn't any dissimilar from other Ivies, is a larger percentage of their admits are legacy admits. And so the implication is these schools are becoming less open, you know, less meritocratic, and candidly more like finishing schools for the rich. You know, a perfect example, Chamath, if you wanted your kids to go to Harvard, you know, they'd have a great shot versus if they were the same kids, you know, with the same accolades, but they didn't come from as extraordinary of a background. So I, I think there's a conflict present in expanding the numerator for the status quo when it comes to things that are naturally scarce. You know, more competition makes it more difficult. I think that um, the higher ed institutions... Um in this sort of like mimetic theory, that's where um, one of the first places to fall. So in this conflict, um, they'll be one of the first victims. And the victimization happens in two ways. One is slow and one is fast. The slow part of where they lose is that the really smart, capable people have less and less of a desire to go. So it's not that their percentage admits you know, their acceptance rate, I always laugh because as a, as a, you know, mathematician, I mean, I was trained as an electrical engineer, but there was a moment where I almost switched to pure math. I'm pretty decent at mathematics, it turns out. Uh, they are like, oh, we have a 6% admit rate. And I think these people are so stupid to not even understand, well, is it the right 6%? Um, and where that shows up is 20 years from now. Because if, if what they get... Um, you know, are a bunch of middling folks, you know, their endowment hits a wall, their credibility as an institution hits the wall. Um, and, you know, the cycle kind of like moves to a different place, right? And so that's the slow part of the cycle. The fast part of the cycle is that there's a lot of, you know, pressure um, to eliminate this classism. So, you know, there was a there was a thing that ha happened um, at Amherst University. I talked about it a few weeks ago, but basically they eliminated legacy admits. And the reason they did that was, you know, they had enough money in their endowment where they felt that that was the right decision for them. Um, Amherst's, you know, admittance rate will probably still be 6%, but I suspect it'll have a better 6% than the old 6%. Um, because again, you know, when some old dude dies, take 50% off the top for a state, and then gives it to some middling rube who then went to, you know, Amherst, 
yeah, you'll get that guy's money, but you're not getting that kid's money or the kid's kid's money because that game is done. And so I think Amherst saw the writing on the wall. They did the right thing. They realized there's enough democracy in the world where we just got to attract the best 6%, not a version of the 6% that makes us comfortable. And I think when the rest of the Ivies realize that, it'll be good. Um, but I also think it doesn't matter because I think the ship has sailed. I don't think the smartest kids in the world are going to Harvard, Stanford anymore. I think it's the, the maybe the best tested, but yeah. these schools overwhelmingly breed middle managers now. That, that's fine. I mean, you know, I think if you're, I think if you're like a really rich person, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity for your kid to be better than you. And I think yeah. that that can be psychologically pretty oppressive. And so middle management probably is pretty decent for them. You talk a lot about first principles thinking and in our conversation, you can hear those flares as we talk about different topics. You have this framing of first principles thinking, which I really like the idea that to get a unique perspective, you should define behavioral principles that protect you from the worst part of your psychology. You know, we won't go through it in this conversation, but you've been very open about the challenges you've gone through in shaping your own personal psychology. I'd love to just unpack how you think about first principles thinking and how you continue to put yourself in an environment in which that reasoning rises above the constant information deluge, you know, that we're all subject to today. So think, think about this in terms of like, um, uh, I think the football quarterback is the best way to, to give you an analogy. So think about Tom Brady. There are a couple of things that Tom Brady needs to do to be the best quarterback in the world or his, you know, the best version of himself. Okay. Um, there is the stuff before the game, right? And what is that? That's eating right, being well-rested, stretching, right? You know, he's very famous for like pliability work. You know, he's not like, let me lift a ton of weights and get all muscle-bound and inflexible. And that's created enormous longevity, right? He's minimized inflation. He's maximized his rest and mental focus. And he's maximized his agility. Okay, well, what is a version of that for me to get to the starting line? Um, I think it's very important for me to actually have all of those things. So the way that I, you know, I eat really well, you know, I try to get a lot of rest. Um, but my version of agility um, and, you know, pliability is making sure that I am mentally healthy. And the way that I do that has been a real process. And I've had enormous, you know, ups and downs and many of them have been documented online so I you know I don't I don't hide from it it's just a journey and I'm very proud of my journey because I came as a kid that was very repressed with a very complicated background but not unique a lot of people have it and you know I have a little blueprint for myself of how I've overcome it I've had people around me that have helped I've had tons of therapy and I use talking about it as a way to maintain discipline and not forget it. Now go back to Tom Brady. Then with all those tools, he gets into the game time situation and he has plays that he runs consistently. You know, how do you do a check down? How do you make sure, okay, who's my first option, second option, third option, assess the risk, make a decision, be okay with yourself. Sometimes you make mistakes, but because of his preparation, He's ready for that moment. Similarly for me, if I do these things, 
in high pressure decisions, um, I think I make very good decisions, um, like really, really good. And, um, and I'm really proud of myself for that, but I put myself in a position to make those decisions. And I have the right mental health. Then I can look at these things and break an item down to its core essence and say, what is the real thing that I'm trying to underwrite in this investment? Or what is this real thing that we're trying to build here? How is the, what is the technical leap we have to make? Um, and it allows me to be hyper-focused on, you know, a very small set of things, you know? And so in those moments, there's no time for Twitter. There's no time for stock apps. There's no time for all of this nonsense. But there's all these kids that are just toiling in that storm and drawing, just drowning themselves in nonsense while I'm eating right, stretching, focusing on my mental health and continuing to crush it. That's the thing. It's, it's hard. It's, so it's, it's really easy to say. It's really hard to stick to it. But that's what first principles means to me. It's very straightforward to break a problem down to its core. It's very difficult to approach it with so few biases so that when it's written down, you can still make the right decision. Because a lot of people can do first principles thinking, but then they filter the right answer through all the bullshit and they get to a bad decision. And it's not to say that, um, you know, I'm always right. Um, but if I made the, the decision in the right way, it tends to work out in the end. How do you apply first principles thinking to your own personal happiness? You know, a lot of the times one can get caught up in and enamored, especially with folks like yourselves, you know, with things like great investments, awesome returns, you know, perks, et cetera. All things that we can probably both agree upon are ultimately superficial things. They're meaningless. Um, They're meaningless. Right. Exactly. You know, to anchor to real happiness, uh, my wife and I have this activity we call our personal compass. We sit down once a month and we have four vectors on it, like a normal compass. And, and our vectors are mind, body, soul, and spirit. And our goal isn't to be in any direction at any point in time. You know, different times require different types of balance, but it's to be anchored in reality and assess whether that reality befits the times. I'm curious if there's anything you and Nat do like that, you know, an exercise or a mechanism to separate your identity from the pomp and galore of adulation and vanity. Yeah, I, sp I spend a lot, a lot of time on this. It, we have, a, I, you know, I have a, I wouldn't say that I have an express framework uh, that, that we've written down that has a, that I can label, um, but we do check in a lot. You know, look, I, I start every Monday talking to my therapist from nine to 10 and uh, he's in LA and, you know, I FaceTime him and he's just superb. And it's a way of just, you know, centering myself um, on a theme and the theme. And by the way, this works for everybody. So I'll, I'll give you I'll give you the summary of thousands and thousands of hours of mental mental health work and therapy and reading. We all have this one massive bug. And some are lucky enough to have a very small version of it. And some are unlucky enough to have it carry on through their whole lives where they make enormously huge mistakes. But it's the following idea, which is that we all have a representation of ourselves. Like you have a way that you think about yourself. It's very hard to articulate. It's just this... I would say it's, it's, it's almost subconscious, okay? 
And throughout the course of a day, you will interact in all kinds of different situations and in all kinds of different environments. And for a lot of us, those situations and environments will then tilt that representation so that it's inconsistent. What it was before and what it was after is not the same. Simple situation, you know, you'll go back to a, something, you know, you'll go back to a reunion. Oh, there's a guy that went to Harvard who's a mega bajillionaire, gajillionaire. Ah, oh, not me. Uh, you know, oh, I, 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 I put on some weight. Ah, this guy's in much better shape. Uh, you know, this guy just got a promotion. I'm grinding it out in Atlanta. This guy's living in London. You know, whatever. And what happens is you have this inconsistency. So you're not consistent. And you know, that causes people to behave in absolutely crazy ways, okay? Um, I suspect like a lot of the kids on Twitter that go crazy, you know, they, they go nuts, you know, they, they, they wanna see me, there, there's a small portion of people that wanna see me fail, why? Because I think they have a view of themselves, they see me tweet something, and they now have an inconsistent view of themselves after reading my tweet and they need to vent in order to try to recalibrate their mind. That's what's subconsciously going on. So I kind of like, I feel a lot of empathy to these folks because I know what that's like. I just didn't have a tool when I was a 25-year-old kid or a 30-year-old person working at a hedge fund who was frustrated. I didn't have Twitter to vent, but now I can have a fake account and vent and go crazy. Um, but that inconsistency is at the root cause of a lot of people's unhappiness and, and dissatisfaction. So I check in a lot with that. And then... At the end of every week, Nat and I have couples counseling for an hour. And that's about making sure that I can detach the baggage of work. And Friday afternoon through Sunday night, I am 100% focused on my family. And I'm completely present and living these beautiful people that I get to be around. That is really a blessing in my life. Um, those are really the two biggest anchors. Then there's some other stuff that matters. Working out and eating well really matter to me. And then, frankly, playing poker and gambling with my friends really matter to me. But if I had to summarize my life, it's a little cocooned. You know, I live in a beautiful place, but I don't leave it that often. Um, and I'm just checking those four things, and I pretty much drown out all the other stuff. And when I get off kilter, I'll give you an example, you know, a month ago, I was in New York, and I went through all these meetings, and then I went to D.C., went to the White House, did all this stuff, and I was really off kilter when I got back. And when I really checked in with myself and, you know, with Nat and then with my therapist, what I really realized is, oh, shit, I have this inconsistent representation because those interactions made me feel very inadequate, and I felt like lesser than I was and not... And I thought to myself, holy shit, stop. Why? Because, you know, this guy made more money this year or, you know, that guy's in a, I mean, it's, it's, it's insanity. We all do it. So that's my little thing. And it's, ta I mean, it's taken me so long to even be able to tell you that those words, you know, people talk about like healing the inner child and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, you want success in life and success in business. It comes from a healthy person. And the most tractable way of defining the problem is this idea. A consistent representation of yourself through any environment and situation. 
that's the Tom Brady pre-work that you need to be doing. And if you can do that, you will crush life. And if you can't, you're just going to be dissatisfied and taking it out on other people. And Shamath, as we round out the discussion, uh, a final question for you, which is probably simple and complex in different ways. I'm curious what keeps you motivated. Why do you wake up every day and do what you do? And what's the change that you want to see in the world as a byproduct of your actions? I think that I have gotten extraordinarily lucky. I had been preparing for success, but I got lucky. I had great mentors. I went to the right school. I got the right job, met the right people. I mean, however it happened, the butterfly effect worked for me. But I'm also very sensitive to the idea that it could have been anybody else. And I think those folks are no worse than me. And I am no better than them. And so I really want to see this starting line, you know, slightly more even by the time I, I die. And I think that that's very motivating for me. It, um, it makes me think like I, I lived through, you know, the idea that there's some like, you know, mouthy little fucking brown or black kid somewhere or yellow, whatever, who could absolutely crush life, who's in a crappy situation. But some of these things change on the margins and then they got a shot. That's really it's really it's really it gives me enormous joy, that idea. And so that's that's mostly what motivates me. I don't think about it every day at the front of my mind, but I do check in with myself every now and then, you know, lose a lot of money. Boop. Did anything really change? Make a lot of money. Boop. Anything change? Have a good article. Did anything change? Have a bunch of, you know, trolls come out. of Did any nothing changes? Not like not not nothing in my life changes. There's nothing that I can't do. It's just how I allow these things to change my representation of myself. Shamat, this is awesome. You know, you've been extremely generous with your time and, and this is really, it's been one of my most favorite conversations we've had on the pod. You know, thank you again. Thanks for taking the time and sharing all the lessons and insights you've gathered from over the years. You're very welcome.